Mark chapter 5, starting verse 21, down through the end of the chapter. Mark writes this, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, who had suffered much under the hand of many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing that what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who had said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. You may be seated. Let's pray. And we'll spend the next 30 minutes or so talking about this. Gracious Lord, uh, this is a special day. We recognize that uh, Resurrection Sunday is so unique and special to us as Christians. And yet, in many ways... It's a day that's set apart, but we already recognize that the reason we gather on the first day of the week is because of the resurrection of Christ years ago. Uh, This is a day that every Sunday should remind us of the beauty and the power of Christ's resurrection, that even though we give it particular focus today, um, this is a truth and reality that saturates not only every Sunday, but every moment, every day of our lives. And so I pray that this morning we would just be 
uh, overcome again with the, the beauty of your resurrection and particularly your resurrection power, which Jesus puts on display in this passage, not necessarily of himself, uh, but for those that he has come to impart new life to. So pray that that would be made clear to our students today. I pray that, Lord, we would continue to just marvel at the beauty and the mercy and the grace of Jesus who has come to save and rescue broken people, broken sinners like us. Uh, so please help us to marvel at him even more this morning. We would ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, picture for yourself this morning as you contemplate this story. Think about ancient Jerusalem. We think about a young couple excited, celebrating one day because the wife Finally, after years, is able to have a child, gives birth to a beautiful baby girl. A moment of great celebration, a great uh, moment in the history of this family. Across town, that very same day, another woman begins to feel pain and discomfort and recognizes that there's something not quite right with her body. Fast forward a few years, this little girl that was born that same day begins to take her first steps, begins to start to say some of her first words. The family is overcome with joy and celebration as this little girl begins to just experience the fullness of what it is to be alive. Across town, the other woman who experiences pain and discomfort has been now for a couple of years exploring options with doctors, asking them what in the world could be going on, what is uh, the situation, how, what, are the, what are the options for, for healing, each time forking over money to say, what can we do to, to make this better? Fast forward a few more years. This little girl is now becoming a, a young lady who is learning and growing. She's, she's uh, maybe even uh, learning after her father who is in the, the synagogue, who is a very influential leader. She's learning from her mom how to, to serve, to, to be a, a young lady who is skilled in all kinds of, of tasks. And the family is just growing and rejoicing over this special privilege to raise this little girl. Back across town, the woman with all the pain and the medical discomfort is getting no better. In fact, she's getting worse. For year after year after year, the bleeding that she is experiencing, the discomfort that she is in, it's not getting any better. In fact, she has not been able to worship. She has not been able to be near anybody for years because she is ritually unclean because of her condition. She's not only feeling the discomfort of all the pain and the suffering that she's going through, but she's starting to feel the physical isolation because she has not been around people for a long time, because to do so would make them unclean as well. And then finally, we fast forward to 
this day. We recognize that for the family of the, the little girl, one day she wakes up and something is not right for her as well. Suddenly, she's experiencing discomfort. She is starting to experience ailments that cause her to not be able to get up and to walk around. She is sick, and even doctors come and say, your daughter is dying. This is completely unexpected. You have a man who now is at the point of desperation, and yet he has heard of a miracle worker, a man who's been traveling the regions, healing miraculously by the touch of his hand or the sound of his voice, those who are once sick. Lame people, now walking. Blind people, now seeing. Lepers, now cleansed. This guy's kind of controversial, though. What would it look like for a religious leader like him to go and actually confront this guy and ask him to come and heal his daughter? And yet that very day, he decides, you know what, that's, that's the only thing left. That is the only option left on the table. And likewise, across town, the older woman is now in her 12th year of this ailment. In fact, she just got back from her final doctor visit where she paid her final bill and she has nothing left to give. All options exhausted, she is essentially to the point of death. Two families, two very different situations, and yet both at the complete point of desperation. We talked about last week how Mark chapter 5 in many ways is the St. Jude chapter of the Gospel of Mark because it is the chapter of desperate and we could even say hopeless causes. We saw a man completely possessed by demons, thousands of demons being made sane and right in his own mind again. We see a woman here who has suffered for 12 years from an ailment that will not get any better. And if that's not enough, we're to the point where we see a little girl who loses her life and has actually died. Complete desperate causes. So the question is, what does Mark want us to learn? What does Jesus want us to learn from these two stories in the final verses of Mark 5 this morning? I think he wants us to learn this morning that the power of Jesus brings new life to those who believe. I love the simplicity of this because that's front and center in this story, that Jesus has the power. He is able to heal and to bring new life to those who believe. So that's what I want to do this morning. We're going to walk back through the story. I'm just going to give you some color to what is happening in the story, and we're going to draw some few points of application, especially in light of the truth that we're celebrating resurrection life this Sunday. So let's look at the first scene together this morning. Scene number one, we see a desperate father reduced to nothing. Already hinted at this here in the opening verses, but you have a man 
in these first few verses by the name of Jairus. Now, that's very interesting because it's not very often in the Bible where Jesus has miracle encounters with people where he names the people or where the gospel writer uh, tells us who the person's name is. So this shows us this guy was a pretty big deal where they were at. We don't know exactly uh, what region they're in here, but notice verse 21 says, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a a great crowd gathered around him. Now, Again, where's Jesus been? If we remember back in Mark chapter 4, he was kind of in the Capernaum region. He was teaching by the sea, got really crowded. He said, let's go to the other side. That's where we were a few weeks ago, right? So Jesus goes into this Gentile region, uh, the region of the Gerasenes, and there he meets the demoniac who he heals. He has one encounter there, one person, changes his life forever, and then they say, you got to go. Your power, your authority is too great for us. You need to leave. And Jesus is polite and obliges. He says, okay, I'll leave. Gets in the boat, and it just says that he goes back to the other side. Uh, That might be around Capernaum, might be another region there. But it says to us that he goes to the other side, and guess who's waiting for him? A great crowd of people. Like like when he left, there was a great crowd there, and a great crowd greets him again. He cannot get away from these crowds, especially there by the sea. And it's here that he encounters a guy by the name of Jairus. Jairus here, it says that he is a ruler of the synagogue. Now, we talked about rulers of the synagogue earlier in the Gospel of Mark. What is a ruler of a synagogue? What type of responsibilities did they have? What type of person were they? Do you remember? What, you guys don't listen? Come on. I know you know this. So a ruler of the synagogue is not necessarily like, oh, he's the pastor of that synagogue. It's more like, uh, if you remember, we talked about it's kind of like a hybrid role. He's kind of like a librarian in many ways. He kind of oversees the, the scrolls and the manuscripts that are there. He's also kind of like a worship leader. He's in charge of organizing the people who come and do the readings there. And he's also like a little bit of the custodian, right? So he's like the person who helps upkeep the building as well. So a very influential and important leader in that society. And it says that his name is Jairus. Jairus comes and he sees Jesus. And why is he to the point of desperation? Well, the background that we just talked about this morning, right? This guy's daughter is at the point of death. It's not just that the doctor said like, hey, uh, she's on the, the, the trajectory towards death. It's that they've told him, hey, she's got like moments to live. Like any moment now, she could pass. This father here, this guy is not just a influential man. He's not just a religious leader. He's not just an authority figure. He's a dad. He's a dad. He's a dad, and he has one little girl in his house who is at the point of death. And it's desperation that drives him to Jesus. And the reason that's so interesting is because, as mentioned, Jesus is kind of a controversial figure at this point. Even though there's great crowds, there's a lot of fanfare around him. Remember, he didn't really... Uh, speak well of the religious establishment back in chapter 3. We started to see him start to challenge the leaders and start to really kind of rebuke them for their system of religiosity. 
And so he's not really making friends with that particular demographic. And so for Jairus to come to this place where he is now falling down at the feet of Jesus, pleading with him, that's a breaking point for sure. It's a point that might have caused some separation with him and some other religious leaders, but as we're going to learn later, desperation is often what God uses us to drive us to himself. And that's exactly what he does here. And he implores Jesus saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Again, not that she's, you know, on the trajectory towards death, but at the point of death. Like any moment now she could die. And what does he ask? He says, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Sure, a lot of people wanted Jesus to do miracles, but this guy somehow in the midst of all this gets to Jesus point of desperation, pleads with Jesus to go with him. And I love what verse 24 says. What does verse 24 say? And he went with him. That's the compassionate nature of Jesus, but we'll also talk more about this verse in just a moment. But we see here again, this desperate father reduced to nothing, which then leads to a second scene in this narrative or in this act. You see a despised woman who is restored to life. A despised woman who is restored to life. And it says in verse 24, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And in other words, this fanfare, this crowd that is by the sea, is now going with Jesus. People pressing in all around him. And it says, in the midst of that crowd, it's not just that Jairus heard about what Jesus had done, but there is also a woman, a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 12 years. This is significant suffering, right? So we're talking about um, some type of like hemorrhaging that she's gone through or maybe even some type of like menstrual bleeding. Like this, this is hard stuff. This is not easy, right? This is, it is, Unclean, it is unwelcome, and it is hard. This is not a lifestyle to live in. And yet she has been living in this nightmare for 12 whole years. How many of you are 12 years old, by the way? Okay. 12 years. Like, that's the entirety of your life. That's how long that she has been going through this here. And it says that that suffering was compounded by the fact that there's been no hope for her. Notice what verse, 25, or verse 26 says, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So notice that it said she had suffered under many physicians. There's very much the potential idea that these guys were manipulating her too, uh, that they were extorting her, promising maybe that they had solutions or options when they really didn't. And they took her money, they charged her fees, but they weren't able to provide any solutions. Or maybe the ones that they did provide, guess what? They only made her worse. It's not just that she didn't get better. It's that this got worse over time, if you can even imagine that. Verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garments. I love she, she heard the reports about him, right? She knew Jesus was great. She knew that Jesus was a miracle worker. And while there is some, uh, if you would call it some 
kind of mysticism in the, uh, the culture at this day, right? The idea that maybe if you were just able to touch his garments, like they were holy and they would make you clean. At the really essence of it is she just knew that Jesus was the only option left for her. We call her a despised woman because this type of uncle- this kind of condition that she was in would have rendered her spiritually and ritually unclean, which meant that she couldn't worship amongst other people. Other people couldn't go near her. They couldn't touch her. She was essentially worse than the leper that we talked about in chapter 1. For 12 years, she's been a kind of despised and pushed aside woman in society, but she's also to the desperation and breaking point here. And so she heard that Jesus could hear and just reaching out to try to touch us, knowing that Jesus himself could provide that type of relief for her. It's the only option she had left. Verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now, think about this for just a moment. I don't know if you guys have ever taken like medicine or something, but you like instantly feel like, boom, relief. She, she hasn't known really, she's, she's had doctors who have given her all kinds of different possible remedies and situations for 12 years, and she knows immediately, these aren't making me any better, they're making me worse. And with Jesus, the moment she touches him, she recognizes something is different. There's something about what Jesus provides her that nobody else could. And she was healed of her disease. Now, this moment for her, the instantaneous power that she felt was also felt amongst Jesus. That's why verse 30 says, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? I love the disciples. If there's ever a time that the disciples had like sarcasm or even like rebuke Jesus, this is kind of one of those situations, right? They're like, uh, Jesus, dude, look around you. Look at all these people. How many of you, by the way, have been to Ascend Camp with us before? Okay, how many of you have stood in the small little packed in commons area before the chapel sessions, Okay. Would you ever think about turning to your friend next to you and be like, uh, who touched me? Right? No, because it's kind of like a natural just expectation that you're rubbing shoulders and touching like with people. Like whether you know them or not, whether you're dating them or not, like it's just like it's it's weird. Like you're you're buddy buddy in there. But you would never think to ask yourself, who touched me? Because that's exactly the type of situation here. They're like, we're in this giant crowd of people trying to navigate these narrow streets of the city. And suddenly you say to yourself, who touched me? It's really, it's humorous when you think about it. But Jesus is doing this for a reason, right? Right? Jesus knew who touched him. He, he, he knew that there was something big that was happening here. But what he wanted to do was he wanted to draw this woman out because he had something very important that he needed to expose with her. Verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Right there in the middle of the street, they have this dialogue, this situation. I love it. Jesus 
stops to hear this woman's story. Now, you have to remind yourself at this very moment as well, who's, who's still with Jesus? Jairus, right? I think it's very likely you see Jairus over in the corner kind of looking at his watch. They didn't have watches, but if he did, he would probably be checking his watch and being like, we don't have time for this. My daughter is about to die. And here's this despised, rejected woman that Jesus now is sitting in the street with, hearing her life's story. As she pours out her heart in the point of her desperation and how she came to Jesus. And I love what Jesus says to her in verse 34. He says, daughter, which don't overlook that for a moment. Daughter, your faith has made you well. The fact that Jesus called her daughter would have been significant because think about this. For 12 years now, she probably thought of herself as anything but a daughter of Israel. She has not been able to participate in any type of the worship services. She hasn't been able to be around the people who are partaking in worship services. She probably felt like an outsider. And Jesus in this moment says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In that culture, to say peace to somebody, that was the word shalom. You've probably heard that before, but really shalom doesn't just mean like... uh, like uh, peace is in no conflict. It means peace like in wholeness. Like everything is where it should be. Everything fits together the way it should. Your life is completed in Christ, essentially. He says, go in peace. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? We go from a despised woman restored to life to a deceased daughter who is raised to life. I think it's interesting that Mark contrasts these two stories by making it very clear that this woman, uh, in the middle account, had suffered for 12 years from this ailment. And then we learn in verse... 42, that the daughter who had passed away was how many years of age? Twelve. These two lives running parallel with each other and now intersecting at this very moment. To go from 12 long years of suffering to 12 short years of life. Because again, I asked you earlier how many of you are 12 years old in this room, right? That's, that's, that's not a lot of life that you've lived. That's that's very quick. It's very brief. You feel like your life in many ways has just begun. And yet for this girl, her life just as quickly is now gone. And they tell Jairus, these guys who are coming from the house, friends, doctors, I don't know who, but they say, listen, too late. Jesus didn't get here soon enough. He doesn't need to come anymore. The girl's dead. Don't, don't trouble him anymore. You just come home. Let's just begin the arrangements necessary. But love this, verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. I 
So, so in the midst of all this, what's most important for you to believe more so now is that I am still able. Do you believe that? You came to me because you believed that I could heal your daughter. Do you still believe that? You came to me because you were desperate and broken. Are you still that way? Then believe. And he took with them these guys, and he took Peter and James and John, and they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, verse 38. And Jesus saw the commotion, weeping, people weeping and wailing. In that culture, uh, wouldn't, this wouldn't have just been family that were weeping and wailing, but in this culture, when somebody died, you actually, it's very different from our culture, but you actually hired people who were what were called professional mourners. And so people would come to, I know, right? Yeah, it's a weird thought, but they actually came to your house and they they helped they helped mourn with you. I don't even know, like it's a very foreign concept to me, but they would come and they would play kind of these uh, musical instruments. They would set the tone with that, kind of a somber tone, and they would cry with you and they would actually they would weep and wail. And so it, this was a environment that was very clear. This is sad, this is desperate, and this is associated with death, right? So not exactly a fun environment to walk into here. And notice, Jesus, in verse 39, says, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. (laughs) Now, Jesus is not lying here. Uh, He's also not confused saying like, oh no, she's, she's not dead. She's actually just like in a, a coma or something, right? She's just sleeping. No, this is Jesus's favorite euphemism or illustration for death. He uses this in the story of Lazarus as well. He says, Lazarus is asleep and we must go and we must wake him. And he later says to his disciples, clarifying for him, no, Lazarus, our friend is dead. But this is not going to end in death. I love that he associates death here with just sleeping because he shows the temporal nature of it, but especially for this unique situation here. These people, they think Jesus is a joke at this point. They just laugh at him. They mock him. Like, okay, yeah, sure, she's sleeping. So he takes Peter and James and John. He takes the mom and dad. He goes up to the bedroom with them. And there they see the child laying, and Jesus goes over, and he takes her by the hand. Now, again, we've talked a lot about uncleanliness in, our cult- in this culture, right? Being ritually unclean, things like that. I mean, so with the woman, she would have been unclean. The leper would have been unclean. Touching dead corpses would have made you unclean. But notice here that Jesus touching a corpse does not make him unclean. In fact, it actually imparts new life. He takes her by the hand and he says to her, this is one of the few times in the Bible where it preserves the Aramaic language that they spoke. So notice it doesn't do it in the English here or translation of it, but it preserves it here because I think it was such a significant moment in this family's life. Telethi kumi which means little girl, I say to you, arise, which little girl actually, you could say little girl or like little lamb. It's a very tender word for a, a little, little child. He says to her, I say to you, get up, arise. 
And just imagine that situation for the mom and dad. To know that your daughter was gone, and in that very moment, all of a sudden, she sits up. And notice that it's just not that Jesus raises her from the dead. Immediately, the girl got up and began walking, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. So it's not just like, oh man, she, she is feeling a little bit better. It's like, no, the fact that she's up and walking means that she was restored completely. Whatever she was dealing with, whatever type of ailment or disease she had, it's gone completely. It's not that she's just back to life. It's that she is now living. Completely fullness of life. And he strictly charged him not to tell anyone now that he's back in this region. He doesn't want this confusion over who he is. But I love that how the story ends. What's the last command that he gives to them? Not that one. There's one more. What? Give her something to eat. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. You wake up from a long sleep. You're pretty hungry, right? I, just, I love. Why in the world does Jesus do that? Why, why, does, why is his last word to this family? Hey, uh, could you get this girl some you know, Honey Nut Cheerios, please? Maybe make her a grilled cheese and some tomato soup, right? You know, and sorry, I've been watching a lot of Gordon Ramsay. He says tomato, not tomato. So why does he do that? Any idea? Why? He's from, he's, he's from somewhere around Europe. Oh, are you talking about uh, uh, the... I mean, like, why does he tell them to give... <laughs> Sorry, that was confusing. Why does he tell the, the family to give uh, the girl something to eat? Let me ask you this. When Jesus rose from the dead, and he saw his disciples, and he visited them in the upper room, what did he ask them to provide for him? Hmm? Perhaps, for sure. But why did Jesus ask for something to eat as well when he came back to life? Yeah, Julia. Yeah, to show that like he was actually alive. Like in other words, they're not like seeing something that's not right. This is not like some trick or illusion. No, this is a physical resurrection that she can take food and eat it, and she is restored. She is walking around. She is like a normal person again completely made brand new. Now, there's another important question that we have to ask ourselves. And this was, again, the reason I've loved studying the Gospel of Mark is because it's revealed to me new insights that I had never thought about before. So I want to ask you this question, going back all the way to the beginning of the story in verse 24. You can say even verse 23. Verse 23, Jairus wants Jesus to do what? What does he want him to do? Come on, we just read this. You know this. What do you, yeah, Claire. He wants him to heal his daughter, but how does he want him to do it? What does he ask Jesus to do? Hmm? To lay his hands on her and to come, right? He says, Jesus, come with me to my house. Now, here's the question that I thought about this week. Why did Jesus not just say, be healed? 
Because if you know anything about the rest of the Gospels, if you've read your Bible any time before, you know that there are times in the Bible where Jesus healed people who were far away by just saying, go home and your servant will be healed. Jesus had that power. He could have in that moment said, your daughter is healed. Why didn't he? Why do you think he didn't do that? Yeah. Okay. In order to heal who? The sick woman. The sick woman along the way, right? Isn't it interesting here? Jesus could have done that. He could have. Do you think in the back of his mind he knew that on the way there was somebody else who was going to need him as well? This reminds me constantly of the compassionate, loving, tender nature of Jesus. Jesus could have, in that moment, healed Jairus' daughter without going there. He could have spoken a word, and she would have been fine. He could have done that. But I think he knew he also had another divine appointment. And that divine appointment was essential for another truth in this story. Because apart from this, we wouldn't have had Jesus say to Jairus in verse 36... Do not fear, only what? Believe. Think about it. This story, this encounter in the middle of it, not only heals this woman, but she serves as an example and as an illustration to Jairus so that Jesus can point to her and say, Jairus, look at what she just demonstrated. She just showed you what genuineness of faith looks like. I want you now to see and illustrate and carry out that type of faith as well. All of this works together for a reason, students. This is why the Bible is so miraculous and so amazing. That when you study it time and time again, you can realize that, no, this isn't just some random story put together, but these pieces all fall together for a reason. And Jesus has a plan, and he has a very uh, compassionate and strategic nature to him. And so as we think about this story through the lens of Resurrection Sunday, what are some of the things that you need to walk away with this morning, other than just marveling at the compassionate love of Jesus? Well, a couple of things that come to mind are this. As we talked about before, desperation often drives us to the only hope that we have left in Jesus. God sometimes has to drive us to the breaking points before we will trust in him and run to him. And some of you in this room know that. Some of you have run from Christ your whole life or did run from Christ your whole life until a very strategic moment when God broke you. It could have been a family tragedy. It could have been your lowest point. Or maybe God will do that for you at some point. I, I even have to sometimes comfort family that way. I don't like doing it that way, but sometimes I have to comfort family by saying, honestly, this horrible situation that's happening to your child might be God's grace because sometimes God has to drive us to our most desperate, darkest moments before we realize that he is the hope and source of life that we have. So understand that sometimes this is how God works for people like Jairus, for people like this woman, to drive them to their most desperate moments in life for us to see Jesus as the hope and the source of life. 
Secondly, this kind of goes back to what we were just saying. One thing is necessary. One thing is necessary, and that is to believe. It's exactly what, uh, what Jesus told to Jairus that day. He says, listen, do not be afraid. Only believe. Trust. Trust that I am able. Trust that I am willing. Trust that I am good. Trust that I have the power to do this for you. Student, at the end of the day, this is the same truth for you as well. What God calls you to in your life is to believe. And especially for those of you who need salvation, right? This is, this is the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is not come to church, you know, at least 40 weeks out of the year, do some Bible study on your own, make sure you say a few prayers and you're okay. Salvation is not my family brought me to church growing up. They were a Christian family, so therefore I'm okay as well. Salvation is not, I have just tried to be a really good person. I try not to, to cuss. I try not to cheat. I try not to, to do all these bad things. And I trust that I'm going to have enough God credit in the end that he's going to say, you're going to be okay. None of those things save you. The only thing that does save you is faith in Jesus. The Bible is very clear that you have to surrender any other thought in your mind that you think will save you and rather surrender it to Christ. And say, he is the only hope. His life, his perfect righteousness is the only option. His death on the cross that we just talked about on Friday night, that is the only hope for my payment for my sin. I can't do it. Only Christ can. And only Christ is the one who will keep me and hold me until the very end. Third, Jesus is the resurrection and life. And I'm Already realizing I probably missed some fill-in-the-blank things there. So the life part is the fill-in-the-blank there, right? So this goes all the way back to what Jesus talked about in John chapter 11. We hinted at it earlier, but this is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He's comforting Mary and Martha here, and he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Soon, this is a reminder. This is that faith and that trust that you are believing in this morning. It's that Jesus is the one who provides new life. He brings new life and he does so to those who believe, who trust, who surrender to him. And when you do, oh man, there are all kinds of great joys for that because faith in Jesus makes you a child of God. Faith in Jesus makes you a child of God. Notice throughout the story, daughter is used several times. Jesus speaks to the woman who was experiencing pain and suffering for 12 years, and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Time and time again, it's emphasized to Jairus about his daughter. And I think there's a beautiful connection here that reminds us that faith and belief unites us to the family of God, that when we trust in Jesus, he brings us into his spiritual family. So much so that 1 John 3, 1 can tell us that the love of the Father that he has given to us is that we should be called children of God. That's a unique privilege. So do not, for one moment, forget how Jesus sees you if you put your faith in him. That he sees you as his child. 
recognize that for some of us we've had we may not have always perfect parents we may not have fathers or mothers who have been there for us the way we expect to but this is this is the good news that reminds us of what we have in christ that we have a good and a loving father who cares and only wants what is best for us fifthly there is no greater joy than to be at peace with God. Because again, remember, what was it that Jesus said to the woman? He says, go in peace. And that is so appropriate when we think about what the Bible says about our salvation, when we experience a new life in Jesus. Because Romans 5.1 tells us, since we have been justified by what? Faith? Belief? We have what with God? We have peace. Because the Bible describes us before putting our faith in Jesus as enemies, actually, of God. It's not that we're, like, neutral. It's like, oh, God's, like, so-so in my book. I could take him or I could leave him. No, the Bible says if you're not for him, you are against him. We have peace with God. In other words, we've waved the white flag We've surrendered to Team Jesus, and we are no longer enemies of his, but we are at peace with him. He has brought us into his family to be a part of that with him together. And then sixth and finally, oh, apparently shows you that I was doing this really late at night last night. Resurrection awaits all those who trust in Jesus. Resurrection awaits all of those who trust in Jesus. What we see with the girl at the end of the story here reminds us of what Jesus has in store for all of those who put their faith in Jesus. The resurrection, students, changes everything. And hopefully you were in service this morning to, to hear about that, to understand the power of the resurrection for you. But I do want to remind you how the resurrection changes everything because 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us in verse 19, if in Christ, listen, this is important, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, student, there's no hope for you after this life. In other words, you're just living for Jesus in this world. And if that's your hope, I'm going to use some strong language this morning, your life's pretty pathetic. You have a pretty lame life. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I would tell you all, go out, live life however you want to. Soak up all the fun, all the pleasure, anything that this world offers you. Because that's the people who are having fun. They're, they're rejoicing. That's, that's what they have to look forward to. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But Jesus did die, rise from the dead. And because of that, your life by putting your faith in Jesus, your life is not to be pitied. Your life is not lame. Your life is not a waste. In fact, this is only the beginning of the joys that God has in store for you because the promise is, in fact, Christ has been raised. And he is the first fruits of those who have fallen, what? Asleep. What did Jesus say to the girl? He's not, she's not dead. She's just asleep. Jesus as the first fruits means that he was the first taste. He was the first sample of what is yet to come 
for all who put their trust in Jesus. Because anybody who puts their faith in Jesus, God says, even though you die, you will live forever. You will be raised to life again. And you will live forever with King Jesus. And so the question that you have to end with here this morning is this. Do you believe that? Do you believe what Jesus promises you? And if you truly do, student, your life is not to be pitied. You have an awesome life. And God wants you to now use it for his glory because your king, (laughs) he is a good and compassionate and gracious king. And he cannot wait to spend eternity with you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for this morning. Thank you for the power and the beauty and the majesty of your resurrection. Lord, help us this morning, more than anything, to believe. To simply ponder that question that Jesus asked his disciples and is asking us by extension this morning, do we believe? And if we don't, I pray that you would give us faith and the eyes to see that we would behold you and trust you and look forward to one day spending eternity with you in our resurrected bodies. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Help us not to neglect that or forsake it this day as we celebrate the resurrection, we ask in his name. Amen.